0: From PRI, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The first marine national monument in the Atlantic features deep canyons and mountains with extraordinary biodiversity
1: of sea life. There's a coral called bubblegum coral, and it looks like somebody just kept sticking bubblegum together until you had a very large coral piece. These things grow eight to ten feet tall and they live over a thousand years. It's like an underwater Joshua tree.
0: Also, there are only 25,000 rhinos left in the world, and they are falling fast to illegal hunting. Now DNA science is giving them a fighting
2: chance. We've had two rhinos poached in our concession this year. They're both right behind us over here where both rhinos, the poachings t- took place. The one was successful, they did get the horn, and the other one we kind of distracted them a bit early, so they weren't successful in getting the horn, but unfortunately killing the rhino. Those stories
0: and biologist E.O. Wilson this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The World Wildlife Fund and the Zoological Society of London release a Living Planet report every two years or so that assesses how the natural world is coping with the stress of rising human population. It is a grim trend. They report global wildlife populations have already declined by almost 60% since the 1970s, and the losses continue. Colby Laux is the Senior Director of the Wildlife Conservation Program for WWF, and he joins us now to explain Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. So, in brief, tell me, what are the findings of this Living Planet report?
3: The big findings are that we've seen a 58% overall decline in the population sizes from 1970 to 2012. So, what that is, is if in 1970 you looked out your window and saw 100 of your favorite species out your window, today you would only see about 42. So, in a single population, there's a 58% decline but that's averaged across over 3,700 vertebrate species.
0: So in other words, I look outside the window now where I used to see 100 crows and they're noisy. They're just seeing 42. And then in my pond where there used to be 100 frogs, I think they're way less than 42.
3: Yeah, that's a good point. And the freshwater loss is tremendous. And so in your pond, if you saw 100 frogs, now you might only see 19. Wow. So what was the data
0: that your analyst used to put this report together?
3: Well, most of the data comes from a published scientific literature. There's many, many researchers around the world and research organizations that are monitoring their own individual populations. So it's basically collecting all that information and putting it into the analysis.
0: What are the factors that are driving these rapid losses in wildlife?
3: Well, the overall major number one driver is just the habitat loss. In the simplest terms, you could think of a forest being converted to a farm. Also, for a lot of the wildlife, the number two driver of loss is over-exploitation, which is a fancy word for saying just taking too many out of them. So on the terrestrial side of things, that is going to be poaching. In the marine areas, it's usually overfishing. And then if you add maybe three more of the big drivers, is going to be pollution, especially bad for freshwater, and then invasive species, and then finally climate change. So they're sort of like the five horsemen of the apocalypse for the populations that are in decline. Talk to me about what species are crashing the fastest. The biggest loss of wildlife is certainly going to be in the freshwater. So the freshwater species have lost on average, 81% of their size between 1970 and 2012. So they are driving a lot of the the loss. And you can imagine freshwater, 0.8% of our land surface is freshwater, but we, we need it for so many things. We need it for drinking water. We need it for agriculture. We use it to create dams to generate hydroelectricity. And all of that affects the freshwater biodiversity. So we have a lot of these river dolphins, these big dolphins that are in rivers that need a lot of space, need a lot of fish, need to migrate, and they're really affected by the pollution, the destruction of their the rivers. And so I would say the freshwater biodiversity is really taking it on the chin.
0: Now talk to me about the regions of the world that you think will most likely have the biggest species loss.
3: Well, it's interesting. Uh, historically, a lot of the species loss may have come from the areas in the temperate zone. So North America, Europe, and Russia, where there's just a lot more people over hundreds of years, thousands of years. And so that's certainly in place. But those are also the regions where we're starting to see some rebounds on some of the wild cats that are in the parts of Europe. So that on one hand, you have that kind of uh, dynamic going on. and the other hand, you have a lot of the tropical areas that are being converted from forest, tropical forest, to agriculture, or some of those rivers are being finding new dams. So those are probably the areas that we're going to see increases and declines. Also, the tropics are just have more species in them than the temperate forests.
0: So at this rate of decline, you know, I'm trying to do some math here, how wrong am I? It looks like this research would indicate we're just going to be out of wildlife by the middle of the
3: century. Population sizes are, are getting smaller, but they're not necessarily going extinct locally. So that, the fancy word for that is extirpated. But, so there's still going to be wildlife, but what there are is you're just seeing smaller numbers of those same populations, but the populations will still be there.
0: So some have been critical of the metrics of your study. They say it oversimplifies a very complex problem. From your perspective, where does the value and the merit of this report's data lie?
3: It's a challenge. So what we have is a single number, 58% decline in populations. And so the, the challenge is to try to portray this information that can be digestible. And I think it's not too different from other major numbers that we hear about, such as gross domestic product, right? So the GDP, GDP is the economic output of a country. And most people can understand that that ranges from apple to your local florist in the basement of our uh, building here. They're very different, but they also have this economic output. Same with the Living Planet Index. So we have elephants in Kenya to uh, salamanders in West Virginia. And so it's, it's trying to capture and give you a taste in the sense of what is happening
0: Colby, you sound all very calm telling us this story, but it sounds pretty scary to me.
3: (laughs) Yeah, you have to have a bit of optimism in this field, and you have to take a lot of negative news, but you have to find the positive places where you can succeed. And yeah, there's a lot of areas for improvement individually to governments.
0: Colby Laux is the director of the Wildlife Conservation Program for the World Wildlife Fund. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Colby.
3: Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Any day now, Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke may send the White House his review of the national monuments the President ordered him to consider for potential resizing, rescinding, or modification. Some 27 monuments are on the list, including the first National Marine Monument in the Atlantic Ocean at the edge of the famous fishing grounds of George's Bank, created by President Obama in October of 2016. There are canyons deeper than the Grand Canyon and four large underwater mountains and nearly 5,000 square miles of ocean that now have the same status as a national park. With a rich biodiversity that includes massive corals, New England Aquarium senior scientist Scott Krause calls this area, 130 miles off Cape Cod, the Serengeti of the seas. He joined us when the monument was declared and described what it was like.
1: The... Monuments area is the edge of the continental shelf of the United States, so the water drops from the top of Georgia's bank, you know, it's perhaps 300, 400 meters deep, and all of a sudden it drops off to four miles deep, and in that steep drop-off, there are underwater canyons created, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago, and then in addition to that, it also, Georgia's Bank sticks out into the Atlantic, so you have this deep water currents coming up out of the Gulf Stream and elsewhere that rush up and bring a lot of nutrients out of the ocean floor to the surface. So the place is remarkably productive.
0: So what do you see? What kinds of creatures? And what do you see in those canyons and around all those underwater mountains?
1: In terms of the number of species that occur there and the number of animals, it's significantly higher than all the surrounding areas. I guess the way I would explain it is you can see thousands and thousands of dolphins and pilot whales and sperm whales extending along the shelf edge for miles and miles, and I have seen thousands at a time. The thing that it reminds me of is that those kind of National Geographic images of the great migrations on the African plains, like the wildebeest migrations and so on, it's just thousands of animals. And the only difference is that there's actually more diversity in some of these habitats. The monuments area has got Oh, probably eight different species of dolphins, several different species of pilot whales and grampus, and then sperm whales and a lot of beaked whales, stuff that you don't see in coastal waters at all. It's not your average whale watch.
0: If you were to give me a short list, which species will be positively impacted by this new protected status of this marine territory?
1: Probably the deep sea corals. Deep sea corals are easily damaged by trawlers or even traps setting on them can damage them. And we've seen some evidence of that in the deep-sea dives that have been done out there. So there's an incredible diversity and abundance of corals in this Monuments area down in the canyons that are just beyond imagining. So, for example, there's a coral called bubblegum coral, and it looks like somebody just kept sticking bubblegum together until you had a very large coral piece. These things grow 8 to 10 feet tall, and they live over a thousand years. It's like an underwater Joshua tree, you know? These animals live for uh, extremely long times, but therefore they're quite fragile. You don't want to disturb them or break them because they've been around longer than we have and it'll take them a long time to get back.
0: So let me ask you specifically, what types of human activities does this designation as a National Marine Monument prohibit then?
1: It will prohibit all fishing. There's a phase-out period for red crab and lobster over the next seven years. And then all commercial fishing will be banned. Recreational fishing is allowed. It eliminates all possible oil drilling. The mining issues will be put to bed as well. There'll be no deep sea mining. So it's really protection from major industrial activities.
0: Ah. Now, opponents of this monument say, oh, it's going to have devastating impacts on New England's fishing industry. Your thoughts?
1: There are some fishermen who fish out there. I don't think there are any fishermen who fish out there year round. Most of them are limited to a couple of seasons. And the data that I've seen on fishing activity out there indicates a very small number of people working there and a very small percentage of their time is spent there. So my suspicion is that this is not a big economic problem. I've heard wildly exaggerated numbers about thousands of fishermen and millions of dollars. And the data just doesn't support that.
0: How important is this area for helping uh, breeding populations of fish up there on the continental shelf?
1: For this particular area we don't know that those kind of studies haven't been done. But the other thing it does that's really important is that we live in a world where the oceans are warming fairly rapidly and they're becoming more acidic. The climatological changes in the North Atlantic are and in fact in the Gulf of Maine, are happening faster than anywhere else in the North Atlantic. And so we really need reference habitats that are not disturbed by all kinds of human activities. And this is a really good one for that.
0: So there was an earlier version of this proposed monument that covered an even wider part of the ocean. How convinced are you that the final plan adequately protects and preserves these important habitats in the Atlantic?
1: You know, if you were a marine mammal, more is better. If you were a fisherman, you'd say less is better. But bigger would have been better from a scientific point of view only because you would capture more of the diversity in that area. In the long term, I think it's too early to tell, but I think the advantage of this is that it puts a stake in the ground that allows us to start thinking about what a marine protected area might do both for fisheries and for understanding climate change and understanding the ecosystems. You know, this is, a, this is an area that is not well studied. There's a lot more to do. There's big areas where we haven't had a look around. There's species being discovered there every time somebody goes down. I'm a marine mammal guy, so I like whales, right? But my favorite animal in this monument is something called a xenophyophore. Which is the largest single-celled animal in the world, and they roll around in the sand on the bottom, and they get sand on the outside. And I don't know what they're thinking, but it's really impressive to have a cell the size of a you know a softball.
0: It's the size of a softball. I know, I know. Whoa, that's a big cell.
1: That's a big cell.
0: So how do you think this monument is going to affect the way that we, as a nation, collectively think about the oceans and uh, and about how we proceed with ocean conservation at the national level.
1: These conversations are going to go on for a long time. I think that climate change is going to force the discussion into places that nobody expects, that there are going to be changes in commercial fisheries, there are going to be changes in sea level and coastal resilience that are going to make people think much more carefully about preservation, certainly of ecosystems I mean, we've learned our lesson from, I would say, Katrina. If you look at the way in which we altered the coastal ecosystem outside of New Orleans, people are now realizing, oh, my God, we've got to put back mangroves. We've got to get rid of these canals. We've got to do things that actually are more in keeping with the original shock absorbers that Mother Nature provided And I suspect that we're going to see that kind of discussion take place around marine national protected areas all around the country.
0: Scott Krauss is a senior scientist at the New England Aquarium and a research professor at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Professor Krauss. Thank you for having me. Coming up, how rhino DNA could help save the species and fight poachers. But first, this note on emerging science from Aidan Connolly.
4: The African pouched rat isn't quite like the rodents you see scurrying along subway tracks or hanging around your local dumpster. These rats are nearly three feet long, including their 18-inch tails. And their size, along with their acute sense of smell, makes them almost more like dogs. It's because of that sense of smell that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has pledged $100,000 into studying these rats in hopes of using them to sniff out timber and wildlife trafficking in Tanzania. Tanzania already has a history of using African-pouched rats, specifically their noses, for a number of purposes. They've been used to diagnose tuberculosis, as well as to detect landmines, where they're suited up with harnesses and fed bananas when they do a good job. Now, these oversized rats are on a new mission, searching out wildlife crime, specifically trafficked pangolins, the most widely poached animals in the world. The research funds from U.S. Fish and Wildlife will help test the rats' effectiveness and, if experiments work, will help set up a program to deploy them directly to the front line at Tanzania's ports. If they prove effective, the African pouched rats could become invaluable to anti-trafficking groups not just in Tanzania, but around the world. And that could be promising news for everybody, humans, pangolins, and the three-pound banana-munching rats themselves. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Aidan Connolly.
0: Some of the most threatened animals on the planet live in Africa, and none face more dire threats than rhinos. It seems a rhinoceros is killed every day or so as poachers go after their horns, which are lucrative commodities in the Asian traditional medicine trade. With just 25,000 or so rhinos left in the world, The threat of extinction looms large. But now an international database that keeps track of 75% of them is offering some hope. This database is housed in South Africa. And from Pretoria, Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom reports on what it does and how it may help save this iconic animal.
5: Brittle yellow grass gently blows in the wind at the Black Rhino Game Reserve near Polansburg National Park in South Africa. Matthew Soki is a field guide here. Driving a safari truck, he scans the familiar landscape and points towards a nearby fence.
2: We've had two rhinos poached in our concession this year. They're both right behind us over here where both rhinos, the poachings t- took place. The one was successful, they did get the horn, and the other one we kind of distracted them a bit early, so they weren't successful in getting the horn, but unfortunately killing the rhino.
5: Stories like that are extremely common here so common that South African law requires that a tissue sample must be collected any time a rhino is moved from one park to another or receives medical care. The sample is used to create a DNA profile for each animal that can be recorded and in case the animal is ever poached can be matched to confiscated rhino horn.
2: What I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be opening a routine kit from a live rhinoceros that has been collected in
5: the field. Amy Clark is a laboratory technician at the Veterinary Genetics Lab at the University of Pretoria. She opens a plastic bag to examine small tubes holding rhinos skin, hair and blood. She pulls out a piece of paper with information about this specific rhino.
2: We know from this particular animal that it is from a male white rhino. It is from the Limpopo province in South Africa, and this was from a live rhino.
5: Clark carries the samples down a hall to the sample preparation room where technicians pound rhino horn to a powder or cut off a small piece of tissue to examine. Then they add the samples to a solution and heat it.
2: The heat causes the um, cells to break open and release the DNA, and from there we take that solution to a machine that uses magnetic beads to pull the DNA out of solution so we can get a a good quality DNA profile.
5: The veterinary lab has a forensic analysis for roughly 18,000 rhinos. That's nearly three-quarters of the total population, and they hope to eventually register every rhino in the world. The Rhino Registry helps officials prosecute poaching crimes. Dr. Cindy Harper is the director of the lab. She says criminals in possession of illegal material like rhino horn might get a slap on the wrist. But when they're linked back to a dead rhino, a crime scene, they'll get a much harsher punishment.
6: We're looking at cases where poachers get 29 years and more because they're actually involved with an illegal hunt and not just possession of rhino horn.
5: The sentence for poaching can vary greatly depending on the country where the poacher was caught. Rhino poaching is a well-organized, highly profitable crime run by a heavily armed international syndicate. Harper says her DNA database allows officers to keep tabs on how poachers are operating.
6: If you look at internationally, that gives you some idea of the traceability of where that horn had moved from the carcass to its final destination and how quickly it moved. It's connecting the dots like that between crime scene,
5: transit, and consumer that Jorge Rios says is so critical. Rios is the chief of the global program to combat wildlife and forest crime at the UN Office of Drugs and Crime. He says training prosecutors in the countries where rhino horns end up is the next step.
4: You need to have a number of concurrent processes going. You need to do the forensics, but Even if you have that information, you need to have the criminal legislation in place and you need to have investigators and prosecutors who know how to use the scientific evidence. You need to train along the entire chain of enforcement.
5: The ultimate source of wildlife protection, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species or CITES, recently met in South Africa. Rhinos have had the highest level of CITES protection since 1977 when trade was completely prohibited. This year, the Kingdom of Swaziland petitioned to legalize the sale of humanely harvested horn. CITES delegates declined to pass the new rule, fearing that illegal horn from poached animals could be laundered in with sustainably harvested horn. But Pelham Jones from the Private Rhino Owners Association says the Rhino DNA database would make that impossible.
7: Because every horn before it enters a trade market has to go through the normal process of verification, knows DNA, etc. So in simplistic terms, if you're not a chicken farmer, you cannot be bringing chicken to the market. So can illegal horn enter the market on the South African side? We say no, it cannot, because of the traceability via via DNA.
5: DNA technology is also being used to create synthetic rhino horn. A biotech company in Seattle, Washington, makes synthetic horn which they hope to sell at a lower price than real horn and put poachers out of business. But Cindy Harper from the DNA Lab says the synthetic horn is virtually indistinguishable from the real horn, so she believes it's a bad idea.
6: The company that's currently really at the top of that drive is wanting to put DNA into the actual synthetic horn and that is something I simply don't understand. I don't see any other synthetic products such as synthetic fur or meat or anything else having the actual animal's DNA put into it. The only reason I can think of doing that is to try and make it impossible for law enforcement to differentiate that. Harper says law
5: enforcement agents already have their work cut out for them. She estimates that just 1% of seized rhino horn samples actually come back to her lab to get matched up on the database.
6: That is the next step in the process, making sure that we get these seized samples back and to be able to look at the whole movement of these horns globally. The criminals are organized. We need to make sure that everybody else who's fighting those criminals are equally organized.
5: Harper's lab is working hard to register all of Africa's rhinos. But there's a long way to go, and it's a race against time. More than 1,300 have already been killed so far this year. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom in Pretoria, South Africa.
0: A bold new proposal to stem global species loss has been created by one of the world's top experts in
7: ants. Edward? Middle Initial O. Wilson, Honorary Curator of Insects at the Museum at Harvard.
0: E.O. Wilson, as he's commonly known, has won two Pulitzer Prizes, including one for his book on ants. But the distinguished Harvard biologist has been studying the challenge of species loss for years, focusing on unique habitats that should be conserved to protect the diverse ecological webs within them. Now in his book Half Earth, he has done the math. He says we can preserve the bulk of species and ecosystems if we set aside half of the Earth's surface, both land and sea. I spoke with Professor Wilson at his home in Lexington, Massachusetts, and he explained why many ideas for how to tend to nature are, well,
7: misguided. I'm concerned because those that I like to call the anthropocenists—that that is, those who feel humanity has so thoroughly change the surface of the earth and in the seas as well, that we might as well give up. The Anthropocene uh, carried to an extreme in its conception is that we've lost the battle in terms of saving natural areas, even in terms of saving most of the biodiversity, the variety of life left on earth. So we should follow along. Now in the next stage, either one to just let it go and proceed to humanize the entire globe. Maybe that was the destiny of the planet. A second version of Anthropocene enthusiasm is, don't worry, the species that have gone extinct, if we have, keep specimens of them and so on, we'll get their DNA and we'll find out a way to clone them and we'll put them all back eventually and create, recreate natural ecosystems are oh, these and similar schemes that have been suggested relatively the same, in my view, as running up the white flag as soon as you see the penance of the enemy appearing on the horizon.
0: So we can do better, you think?
7: We better do better. Uh, yes, we can do vastly better. And uh, the conservation movement around the world has been doing everything possible in a conventional world view, with nobility of purpose, with enormous energy and effort and dedication. It has saved a lot of species. But what most people don't realize is that in addition to those beautiful big animals that we so admire and we see many going extinct or up to the brink of extinction, there are literally millions of smaller creatures that are the foundations of our ecosystems both in the land and the sea and that they too are probably disappearing at about the same rate so that we simply are not doing enough of the vertebrates that's the group we know the best because we know all of these vertebrates we know the fish we know the amphibians we know birds and mammals and reptiles, one-fifth of those vertebrate animals I just listed are sliding down at a pretty rapid rate and going off the cliff to extinction. And of that one-fifth, we're losing, even with our best efforts, 80% or so. We haven't stopped it. We've slowed it, but we haven't stopped it. So we needed something completely different.
0: And the bottom line, and of course, we're talking about your book, Half Earth, Our Planets Fight for Life.
7: Yes. The um, book's premise is that what we need to do is try for a moonshot. And the moonshot is to set aside half the surface of the land and half the surface of the sea as a reserve. A reserve that doesn't exclude people by any means. Indigenous people are in fact encouraged to enjoy them and continue their way of life. But if we could give half of the Earth, primarily to the millions of other species that inhabit the Earth with us, then we would be able to save about 80 to 90% of the species, bring the extinction level down to what it was before the coming of humanity. That would be a successful moonshot.
0: So talk to me with some math about the concept of half-Earth. Just how could this work? How would this work?
7: So where are we right now? And I can tell you that in the United States, we have already put aside about 15% of the land surface. And for the planet as a whole, this is land. We're at about the same, we're about at the 15% mark around the world for um, the land. And for the sea, it is far less, somewhere around 1% to 3%. And for the United States, it's up toward what it is for the land, it's about 10% of the territorial waters of the United States. So we need to move that on up to about half in order to reach a fairly safe level. Can we do it? Uh, Yes, we can do it. Just taking opportunities, gerrymandering uh, small pieces, linking existing parks and small reserves together, we can move the United States up to 50%.
0: That's biologist and conservationist E.O. Wilson. We're back now with renowned conservationist E.O. Wilson, whose book Half Earth proposes a daring idea. He says we need to set aside half of the Earth's land and sea for the 10 million other known species on the planet. To reach that ambitious goal, Professor Wilson imagined how we might conserve so much North American land.
7: I have a, a notion I call squaring America. North America, including the United States. We start Yukon to Yellowstone. That can be done right now. But let's go on, Yellowstone, on down to the Rocky Mountains. And we could easily, well, relatively easy, set up reserves all the way down there as a continuation of the corridor. We get to the Southern Rockies, and then we have to jump over a bit to the Sky Island Mountains of Arizona. If we wanted, then we could continue the corridor if our Mexican neighbors would like it in the Sierra Madre Occidental. And we now go back up to the Yukon and let us think of a great broad corridor across the coniferous forest, the taiga of Canada. Then, reaching the Atlantic coast, let's bring it down through the best forested areas to Maine and over to the still wild areas of Vermont, New Hampshire, through surprisingly open areas that remain in upstate New York until we arrive at the Adirondack. Now we continue the square down onto the southern Appalachians, which reaches into northern Georgia and Alabama, but now comes the Gulf Coast. We'd like to see a corridor from at least far east as Tallahassee, extending along the Gulf Coast, which is biologically the richest part of North America, incidentally in numbers of species. See it extended on over to Louisiana and eastern Texas. That then, if you think about it, would box America, north, south, east, west, on our square. By the time you pull that off, if you can, you've really added a large amount of natural area.
0: So what is it about us humans that a majority of people don't share your view, don't understand your urgency, your sense of urgency about this? What is it about us as a species that you think gets in the way. And you write about this some in your book, half
7: I'm afraid that's part of what we call human nature. I believe the reasons why we do so many stupid things, including having um, constant war and tribal battles and internecine civic strife and conflict between religious faith, we succeeded as a species. You know, we were just one species out of many creatures that looked a little like us anyway, the Australopiths and pre-human species. There were quite a few that came into existence and died off. And our stock was the one that got hold of the capacities for language and dividing labors of cooperating groups. We were the one species that got out from Africa, and we did it about 65,000 years ago And our populations, our ancestral populations, everywhere, as they spread and, of course, as they multiplied in in Africa itself, they would enter the uh, whole new environments, natural environments, and everywhere they went, they met the pristine environments, and they found survival by utilizing everything they could get their hands on in a pristine environment. They uh, began by killing off, in many cases, the native birds and mammals for food. They uh, then cleaned out a lot of the environment with the plant environment by harvesting. They began to develop agriculture. That began about 12,000 years ago. And that meant, despoiling the original environment, we survived, we multiplied, we were Darwinian. Those among us who did the most damage to the environment, to our benefit and riches, were typically the ones that got ahead of the competitors in the next area over, and surely that has had an effect on our uh, the evolution of human rapaciousness when it comes to dealing with the environment. That's why it makes it so hard to say, "Please halt and reconsider before you mow down that rainforest." Please consider leaving enough space on the surface of the Earth and the sea for those estimated 10 million other species that exist and which we're wiping out at a rapid rate. We don't know what we're doing, and we're destroying something ineffably beautiful and something that human mind and emotions need because we still have a deep love of the natural environment in which we evolved. Uh, and that included the richness of life and the beauty of open, unspoiled areas.
0: Why do humans need other creatures? I mean, to what extent are they just nice for us to see, or how vital are they for our survival?
7: When you start reducing ecosystems by allowing species to go to extinction, then what you are doing is weakening the system as a whole and then it becomes vulnerable to accelerating change and collapse. We're worried now with good reason about climate change and the fact that we are racing toward almost lethal conditions for life as a whole if we continue on our present path. But what's less recognized is that the same thing exists for biodiversity, for the variety of life that make up the natural ecosystems of the world, we're moving toward a point where the whole thing could begin to unravel with disastrous results for people locally and globally.
0: So some folks would say, look, why not novel ecosystems or those that gradually emerge when alien species
7: invade natural ecosystems? They might be good enough. Oh, you say that so convincingly. (laughs) I know you're posing the question. Well, we were talking earlier about the uh, Anthropocene, and I told you a stunning fallacy that they engage in. This is the next one. They said, well, you know, all around the world, humans are carrying, whether they intend to or not, these alien species, and they're releasing them. And these are in the worst, most disturbed areas. They're sort of building up little ecosystems of their own. Well, these are highly unstable, and they also include some of the worst pests for humans. And, of course, they're very bad for the native species they come in contact with. Novel ecosystems are something to resist and not think of ever as a substitute for the far richer and more stable natural environment. If you want an example of a serious novel ecosystem go to Hawaii, when you get off the plane and you get your lei around your neck, you will probably not have a single native plant species in there, There there'll be species of plants, some of them beautiful, that have taken hold in Hawaii and that can be seen almost any port of call around the tropical world. The birds you see are, are virtually all going to be introduced birds. So what you're seeing, then, is a hodgepodge of alien species from all around, and we don't want that to be the condition of the world. So um, one of the
0: things you write about in this book is having a Lord God moment (laughs) as a naturalist. Tell me what you mean by that and your favorite Lord God moments.
7: Okay. Well, the Lord God moment comes from the uh, southern name for Lord God Bird. The ivory Bill woodpecker never was very abundant so that uh, Southerners settling across the South would occasionally see one. And when they first saw one, the second biggest woodpecker in the world, you know, brilliantly colored. Well, when they first saw these birds, people often said something like, Lord God, what is that? And that spread enough so that they, uh, many often began to call Lord God bird. And what can I say, I have had many Lord God moments, but mostly with ants. One such moment was in the tropical forest when I first saw a swarm of army ants, up to millions in one colony, marching as a broad front like a conquering army spreading through the forest floor, capturing everything it could find and kill for their food, and then settling back into a heavily guarded bivouac where they live. That should be a Lord God moment for anybody to see that. Of course,
0: the Ivory bill woodpecker is gone. You can't find it anymore.
7: It's gone. And the last one was seen, I think, in the early 1940s by a little boy who knew where a single Ivory bill woodpecker would rest for a while, and he would go out to see it, and then one day that was gone, and all hunts for it have failed. I was given anything to be able to see in Ivoryville Woodpecker.
0: You have a name for the geologic epoch we may be creating here if we continue on the path of destroying habitat and causing species extinction. What is this name, and
7: tell me why you call it that. Well, you know, about the time of the name Anthropocene, the age of man, came in, I suggested that we use the uh, term for th- this period that we dominate the world is the aremozoic Eremo means lonely. And so Arimozoic means the age of loneliness. And for me, kind of the saddest part of all, there would be a heavy weight on the human soul if we really entered it, would be uh, the Arimozoic age of loneliness, where most of the life on earth that we evolved in, most that you and I are still living in was gone forever.
0: And maybe our planet, our species, maybe shouldn't try doing without the rest of the other species, huh?
7: I think we shouldn't try that. We only have one, uh, I like to call it one Earth, one experiment. We only got one shot at this. Let's be careful.
0: I know that you're especially optimistic about the role that technology uh, could play in conserving biological diversity. Why do you think the digital revolution is
7: going to help nature rather than make things worse? You know, the first reaction to thinking about the digital civilization we're moving into so dramatically right now is going to be bad for the natural environment. That's because we think about the digital revolution in the same terms that actually did exist leading up to it. But the digital revolution has qualities to it that are not shared by any means with the first primitive technological industrial revolution. And those qualities all point to a lessened size of what's called the ecological footprint. And everyone, I think, should know what the ecological footprint is because it's critical. The ecological footprint is the amount of area and space, if you wish to make it three-dimensional, required by the average person to maintain for that one person all of the uh, necessities of life that range from food, from water, from shelter, from entertainment to governance and so on and on and on. And for most of the world, it's one to ten acres. Depending on the country, for America, it's much higher than anybody else. And it's not sustainable. And why would I be optimistic that the digital world is going to shrink that? Uh, that is the nature of economic evolution that people want and they will select, if they have any choice, instruments and material goods that are smaller, consume less energy and material, need to be fixed less frequently. And all of that means that the ecological footprint is destined to shrink. And if we can now keep our hands off of the natural areas in the world, If we can devise entertainment and fulfillment, making use of all of the accoutrements and monuments of digital age, and develop a conservation ethic, I envision a possible paradise for humanity by the 22nd century.
0: Paradise for humanity by the 22nd century, and right now we're threatened by climate change, pollution, and loss of species at a precipitate rate?
7: Well, I know, but now let's think about the United States over a comparable period. You know, its developments as a nation and a society from, say, 1800 to 1900. Uh, humans are making that rate of change. And I believe there's an inevitability of the shrinking of the ecological footprint, not because people know what it is and want to see it shrink, but because of the uh, economic evolution that seems inevitable.
0: E.O. Wilson's new book is called Half Earth, Our Planets Fight for Life. Thank you so much, Professor Wilson.
7: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Birds come in all shapes and sizes, with feathers drab or colorful and voices melodious or grating. And periodically, as Mary McCann points out in today's
8: bird note, there are birds that are, well, downright weird. Deep in the dense, remote swamps of Central Africa lives one of the most peculiar looking of all birds. Picture a massive, Blue-gray stork standing up to five feet tall on long gray legs, but instead of the stork's long tapered bill, substitute a prodigious stout bill that's hooked at the tip, and that gives this bird its name. Meet the shoe bill, a bird unknown to science until the 19th century and the only living member of its family so named because that comically large bill is yellow-orange and shaped like an oversized Dutch wooden shoe. But although the shoebill looks like it walked right out of a cartoon, its beak is no joke. The edges are sharp enough to behead its prey, which include catfish with hard, bony heads, as well as lungfish, snakes, and even baby crocodiles, which shoebills hunt in the shallows, often standing completely motionless before they strike. The shoebill's physical resemblance to the stork gave it its early name, the whale-headed stork. But DNA analysis showed that it's more closely related to pelicans, another group of birds whose oversized beaks are truly awe-inspiring. Shoebills are notably less numerous than pelicans, though, with only 8,000 surviving in the wild. I'm Mary McCann.
0: Swoop on over to our website, LOE.org, for some pictures. We leave you this week on a secluded beach along the central California coast. Mesmerizing sounds of the Pacific at Big Sur. If you listen closely, you'll hear some barking sea lions as well. Bernie Krause recorded them for his Wild Sanctuary CD, Ocean Dreams. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Matt Hoysh, Noble Ingram, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Liz Malloy, Helen Palmer, Rebecca Riedelmeyer, Olivia Reardon, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger and Jake Rigo engineered our show. Allison lierish composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
5: Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, Developing the Next Generation of Environmental Leaders